Now, in hindsight, when you look back, when you're a startup, it's good to pick some secular trends in a market that you bet on that other people are saying, ah, you know, I don't think that thing will really take off. But you have good reasons to take that calculated risk. So making sure that you have that vision really clear, communicating that vision over and over to the employees and making sure that you get all your employees behind that vision, outlining a strategy of how you're going to get there. Just focus on a really awesome problem and believe that you can change the world with it, and maybe you can. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm very excited to welcome Ali Gotzi, founder and CEO of Databricks. Ali earned his MBA from Mid-Sweden University and his PhD in computer science at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology. Founded in 2013 by Ali, along with his partners and developers of Apache Spark, Databricks is an open source platform used for machine learning and large-scale data analytics and engineering. It's used by thousands of organizations worldwide, including household names like Shell and Condé Nast. And Databricks has offices all over the world and is headquartered here in San Francisco. We're really looking forward to digging into Ali's story and the Databricks story today. Ali, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Great. So to set the stage, you know, we, we, we've done a lot in open source and we'll continue on this podcast and a lot of our Listeners are are very familiar with Databricks as a company, but can you tell us a little bit more about what Databricks does? Um, Your website calls you, says, one unified platform for data and AI built on Lakehouse architecture with use cases for data science, machine learning, BI, and data engineering. That's a lot. So can you put it in context for us? Where does Databricks fit in the modern data stack? Yeah, it's super simple. We take massive, massive amounts of data that enterprises have, and we do machine learning and data science on it. In other words, we can predict things. To give you an example, a company like Regeneron was able to use us and our machine learning algorithms to detect the genome in a DNA of human that's responsible for chronic liver disease. And they were able to then develop a drug uh, that targeted that particular genome. So you know, that's one example. On the other hand, a company like Comcast, they have a remote control. It has a voice button that you can press and, you know, you can talk to it and say, you know, go to this channel or tell me what the weather is. And that all that data goes into the cloud, goes to Databricks, and then it uses machine learning to figure out what you said and actuate it. Uh, so massive amounts of data and then predictive AI. That's really cool. I did not realize that, for example, Comcast's voice-controlled remote is actually running through Databricks. Any other cool stories like that that consumers may know where, you know, Databricks is involved with powering interesting real-world applications? Well, we can't get into too much of the details, but pretty much most of the drugs that you've been reading... We won't tell anybody. You can We can okay. get into anything you want. Okay, that's the case. No. <laughs> uh, most of the drugs uh, around the uh, COVID-19 vaccines and also some of the other drugs that have been mentioned that are not vaccines were used by those teams. So those are uh, very exciting use cases. But also during the pandemic, it was used uh, to figure out uh, what's the level of PPE and, you know, ventilation mm. and so on, mm. you know, in the different hospitals, you know, 
some of the sort of healthcare providers could actually compute in real time uh, ER score on how packed the ERs were so that they could actually redirect traffic, you know, uh, route people to the different hospitals based on this ER score in real time. So lots of use cases uh, in the healthcare sector like that. But I think some of the also interesting ones are in uh, fintech. So there they use alternative data, satellite imagery. And from that, they can infer all kinds of activity and they can actually invest in uh, you know, companies based on what they're sort of gleaning out of those satellite, satellite images. So that's sort of a, another exciting sort of fintech use case that we're seeing. But you know, there's also a lot of companies just in industrial IoT that have lots of equipment. They have sensors attached to them. Mm. Those sensors, they collect data and you can in advance then predict what's the likelihood of the equipment breaking down. This is called predictive maintenance. So Shell, for instance, has 200 million valves, and they can then predict in advance if they're going to break down, replace them. And that turns out that's better for the environment. Uh, It's better for the employees, for the safety, and it also saves them a lot of money. Uh, So there are endless, endless use cases like this. And, uh, you know, uh, they're all pretty cool. That is incredible. Thank you for sharing. So I want to go back a step. You know, you're one of the co-founders of Databricks, now CEO but Databricks was birthed out of the work uh, being done at Berkeley developing Spark, the open source. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be great. Just maybe you could give us a brief anthology. How did Spark come to be and where did Databricks then form? I'm lucky enough to be on a board with Jan Stoika, and uh, he actually showed me Spark early on. I wasn't smart enough to figure out what it was and anticipate all these amazing use cases. But tell us about like the birth of both Spark and the company. Yeah. And since I know you went to Stanford, maybe I can pitch a little bit and promote Berkeley here. Uh, (laughs) At Berkeley, there was this professor uh, who's still around. His name is Dave Patterson, who's actually a Turing Award winner, which is kind of like our Nobel Prize Mm. in computer science, as close as you can get to it in computer science. And he was a big believer in these very collaborative labs. Sort of these professors at Berkeley gave up all their office space and said, let's just sit together with the students and be super collaborative. So Spark was a little bit the product of that environment. So all these researchers were sitting together and they had different backgrounds. We were the people that were building software systems. And right next to our cubicles were these uh, statisticians and sort of mathematicians and machine learning folks. And they were really struggling building machine learning algorithms, predictive machine learning algorithms. And they asked us sort of, hey, do you guys know how you can help us? Uh, can you make it faster? They were trying to actually do this with Hadoop back in the day, believe it or not. And it was way too slow. Yeah. So the first version of Spark actually came about us trying to help them. It wasn't called Spark. It was just some software that would just make that way faster. So they could Mm. load the data into the memory and they could iterate over it very, very fast, which they couldn't do with any of the technology stack. Either they couldn't use big enough data sets or they couldn't use it in memory and iterate on it fast enough. Uh, so that's the really first use case was that machine learning use case, um, that we built it for. Very cool. Now let's talk a little bit about Databricks. Uh, so you've been CEO since 2016, but when you first co-founded the company, I think you were VP engineering and maybe running product management. Yeah. What was like the path like for you that led you to the CEO role and curious what that transition was like, you know, what, what sort of drove it and. And uh, how do you like being CEO? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I actually loved being head of product and engineering. So I, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to make the transition when sort of they asked, hey, do you want to uh, take on the CEO job? 
But now when I reflect back, the first years of these startups, it's a lot about finding product market fit and building a product, the first initial version of it. Mm -hmm. So honestly, most of the game is really, that's where it's at. It's building that product and figuring out the product market fit. So being head of product and engineering in some sense is maybe one of the most important things you can possibly do uh, in the company. So, and that's why I was hesitant to move on from that. Uh, but once you've kind of built that initial product, it's a lot about scaling uh, the rest of the organization. Uh, so that's what the transition was about, you know, building out the go-to-market functions, hiring new executives, and making sure that we get the business strategy right so that we can actually have sort of get business value out of this and grow the revenue predictably. So that's what that job was about. I remember when I took the job, I mean, I was sort of sleepless uh, multiple nights, sort of uh, scared of what I was embarking on. But uh, after you've done it, you know, I, I would say the CEO job is actually easier than the head of engineering and product job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go back to that. Uh, this is more fun and slightly easier, to be honest. I've heard um, Armand Dadgar, who I know you know, who's one of the co-founders over at, at HashiCorp and just an amazing guy. I've heard him describe the changing roles of the CEO as first, the first, the, the CEO is a pioneer uh, looking for that product market fit. And then leadership becomes the job becomes the town settler <laughs> somebody who's got to like make sure that the the left and the right hand are talking to each other and that you you figure out go to market and then the third job which i think phase 3 you're probably in now is more around like city planner <laughs> because as things scale you know it's it's hard to make sure that uh, things stay efficient and scaling you guys have done incredibly well I think you've said when you took over, the company was maybe right around a million or even sub one million of revenue. And that was already three plus years, I think, into the life of Databricks. And as we're going to talk about, you've grown just dramatically since then. Um, curious, like whether you had a clear vision when you took over as CEO for how the market would play out and the strategy that you wanted to pursue. Did you make some changes when you became CEO? that helped unlock that growth or, or what was it just good timing? Yeah. I mean, maybe I can share an anecdote from the early days. Uh, so people understand sort of how we were planning to grow this fast and how big we wanted to get the founders. When we created the company, we went around and said, what would be a great outcome? This is 2012 before we founded the company. What would be a great outcome for the company? And I think the most bold co-founder said, you know, if we could sell this company for a hundred million dollars, that would be wow. amazing. And then, you know, and then the next guy sort of, you know, one up and said hundred, hundred, I think I would 150. I think we can take it to 150. And the number kept going up and I think it stopped around 200. And whoever said 200, 250, I think it was Jan Stoika. We all looked at him and said, wow, he's that one bold man. <laughs> what a big thinker. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how we were planning things uh, in the very, very beginning. But we had some hypotheses, which I don't think were off. And I think now in hindsight, when you look back, when you're a startup, it's good to pick some secular trends in the market that you bet on that other people are saying, ah, you know, I don't think that thing will really take off. Mm. But yep. you have good reasons to take that calculated risk and you double down on that. I honestly think that's the only way to create really, really successful companies because if you're just trying to do a little bit, you know, what everybody kind of is doing, but doing it a little bit better than everyone else, uh, the big companies will eat you up. They'll copy your strategy. They have more engineers. They have more funding. They have way more market reach than you. Uh, so you stand no chance. So really what you have to do is you have to pick some trend that's kind of off to the side, 
that people are skeptical of. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully that thing that you've picked is actually something that's going to take off. And by the time it's become big enough, that market is big enough, uh, you're a fairly big player in that small market. And now the big guys are coming after it, but they can't fast enough change your strategy to come after that market. So now you're a big enough player and you have enough momentum. So it's hard for them to catch up with you. Uh, In our case, it was a firm belief that the cloud would take over. So we believed in the cloud. And you have to, you know, see in 2012, almost everyone was telling us there is no way. Like, I mean, it's a great thing. We all believe it's the future, but it's going to take many, many decades before that happens. You know, there's all these on-prem data centers. People have invested, you know, millions of dollars in those. Mm -hmm. They can't abandon those. You know, it's huge capital investments. They're not going to just abandon those. Also, there's regulations and people own this data. They're not going to just abandon that. So they're going to have a tight grip over that. And data has gravity. Kept hearing this. Data has gravity. Data 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 has gravity. gravity. You know, so, you know, you should go on-prem. So we had investors telling us we should go on-prem. I remember every go-to-market expert and uh, sort of executive I hired, after a while, once they sort of settled, would come back and say, I have a a thing I think we should seriously consider is we should pivot and go on-prem. And at some point, I even had a mutiny in staff where all the go-to-market leaders at the same time kind of jumped me and said, we all think we should go on-prem. So that's one sort of secular trend that we bet on. A second secular trend that we bet on was AI and machine learning. Again, mm-hmm. we were kind of lucky, right? We got to see it at Berkeley that that was a thing. It wasn't a big deal in 2012. The whole world wasn't thinking about AI. AI wasn't really a term that was used for these things. AI was used for robotics and other things. And then machine learning was used also, but it wasn't this kind of widespread adopted thing. Mm. So those were two big things. And then open source was something we really believed in. That was already a thing at the time, uh, but there was also some skepticism. So picking these secular trends and then getting lucky that those actually did take off, that was, I think, really important for us. I don't think it's rocket science to kind of, you know, if you just sit and think from first principles, think about what are the things in the future that are bound to happen and then double down on those. I read somewhere that that's also what Jeff Bezos did back in the day. Mm -hmm. He thought about when he was an investment banker, what's the big thing happening in my time? It's the internet. You know, and then he just doubled down on that and he stayed true to it for a few decades. So the story at Databricks is not very dissimilar. That's a great, that's, that's really interesting framework. I, just to double down on your, you know, you mentioned these big bets, open source, uh, cloud and betting on AI, ML, maybe when it wasn't obvious. You know, we, we've had uh, Dave McJanet on. We, I think before this airs, we'll, we'll be airing an episode that we did recently with David Acheria at Mongo. You know, you look at those guys, you look at Elastic. Most open source companies these days have started with an open core, self-managed on-premise kind of commercialization strategy and moved to the cloud. You, you went straight to cloud, just as you said, that was one of the big bets in addition to the open source. Curiously, like, you know, Amazon already, I think, had a Spark service available or was a competitor or certainly a would-be competitor. When you look back on your decision to be cloud first and really cloud only, it sounds like, you know, you've had a long list of folks who have questioned that decision, even internally. What's given you the gumption and the confidence that that you were right? And have you ever had a moment where you wondered whether or not maybe we ought to, you know, shift course because it really is a defining and unique element of your business but i'm I, i'm sure it wasn't easy 
you know, in hindsight, it looks like a great decision, but I'm sure it wasn't always easy. Yeah. I mean, was there doubt? For sure. You know, were there many, did we do offsites where we discuss how would we pivot and how would we do that and so on? And did we seriously consider going on-prem? Yes, we did. But, you know, the business kept growing. And the more it grew, the more successful we were, the more we were convicted that there's so much demand for this. Mm-hmm. What are we trying to solve? Like, it's growing super fast and we're doing well. Why, you know, if it ain't broke, why try to fix it? But, you know, again, the pundits would tell us, but you don't understand. The deals are so much bigger and that's where the mm-hmm. money is. And, you know, all the IT spend is in fintech and they're on prem and so on. But again, we went back to, look, it's going well. The numbers are growing. What are we really trying to, we're not, it's not broken. What are we trying to fix? Did you have any customers who tried to drag you? Like customers who said, yeah, we love, we love the cloud stuff, but if you just did this on-prem, we'd pay a double or triple. And how did you deal with those kinds of episodes? Yeah, I remember I had been CEO for one week and we visited JPMC in New York. And one of the execs looked at me and said, so you're the CEO now. So now you're the head honcho of this company. So what, what does it take? How much do I have to pay you uh, <laughs> for you to change your strategy and build this on-prem for me? And I didn't know really what to answer. I mean, I was like one week into the job. And he said, 5 million, 10 million, 15, 20, how much? You know? <laughs> so yeah, of course, the customers who had all these regulations and they had their data gravity and they had their data centers, they were definitely pushing us. But the interesting thing that happened is that a lot of the leaders got replaced. And these change agent, chief data officers, CIOs were you know, pulled into these companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these leaders were kind of leaders that were thinking, you know, I'm bored of being a CIO exec here. I've been doing this for 40 years of my life. You know, if I'm going to do it again, I want to I want to change the world. So I'm going to change this organization. I'm going to actually push my organization. So they were kind of rebels. These were execs, you know, with suits, but they were the rebels that kind of changed these big organizations and sort of got agreement, started these small projects and then slowly pivoted their company I'm sure it was more complicated than that. And there was sort of lots of people involved in decision-making, but definitely there were in each of these companies, there was sort of one or two leaders that really pushed for it. And then it happened. So definitely it's been a journey, but over time it became more and more clear. Uh, The momentum that the cloud had has definitely been much faster than we had even hoped in our wildest dreams. We just thought it's growing fast enough for us to, you know, make our numbers. We didn't think it would be just the thing that completely is going to take over everything everywhere. Takes a lot of discipline, though. On uh, you know, first week on the job as CEO, and you know, J.P. Morgan's trying to throw many millions at you to shift strategy and and holding holding firm on it. Obviously, it's paid off, and uh, appreciate you sharing that anecdote. So let's talk a little bit about the open source model. How important has it has being associated with Spark? And that open source community, how important has that been for, for customer adoption? Obviously, you've got a lot of customers. So curious whether or not open source has provided any velocity for you or, you know, look, looking back, what, what are the, the advantages you've seen from being open source or having, having uh, open source roots? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword for sure. But I can start by saying that I don't think Databricks would exist today if we had started with some proprietary th- engine. Mm-hmm. So let's say we built Spark at uh, UC Berkeley, but then when we started the company, we started a new proprietary engine, call it Ignite. And then we would have built the company on that. I don't think we would have succeeded. I don't think we would have gone to where we are today. So, you know, so that's definitely a huge advantage. The community, I mean, it made an enterprise company like Databricks 
almost like a B2C company, you know, in terms of growth numbers and adoption and sort of mind share uh, and the kind of marketing around it almost resembled more the B2C style, you know, the Facebooks and the, you know, Twitters of the world, but it's actually an enterprise business selling to enterprises. Uh, So that was a huge benefit. The problem, of course, is people would come up to us and take selfies with us and say, oh, we love you guys. You know, you guys created this thing. You know, we're big fans, you know, Apache Spark, you know, we gave them free t-shirt. They would put it on and, you know, but then we turn around and ask the same people like, okay, can you, you should pay like a million or 2 million for this software. And they would say, why would I do that? You know, it's free. Download it. You know, I love you guys because you're the good guys. You gave away the software for free, but we don't want to pay millions of dollars for this stuff. So that's the other side of the sword that you have to think through. You have a community edition as well, which is free. Is freemium kind of a complementary strategy to open source or is it one and the same? How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's different. You know, I mean, open source, uh, first of all, almost all open source software is on-prem software, yep. including Apache Spark and so on. In other words, it has a version number and it gets released a few times a year and it's maintained that way. Databricks business from the get-go is not on-prem. So we have a SaaS version of the software that's running and, you know, it's getting released frequently and so on. Kind of think of Google search. When you search on Google, you don't know which version of Google you're using. No. So that's one fundamental difference. Uh, So, you know, whereas freemium more is about, you know, I'll give you a taste of the stuff, but we limit it in certain ways. And then, you know, you pay for for the full extended version. So I think they're different. I think the most important distinction, though, I would make is between SaaS open source. So software as a service open source is very different from on-prem open source. Mm -hmm. And it's much more monetizable. Uh, Just to be a little bit provocative, I usually tell people, you know, one of the greatest open source companies in the world is AWS. And people say, wait, wait, they don't develop any open source software. You know, they're they're against open source. I say, no, it's actually a you know, great business model. Many, many of their services are based on open source software and you can rent it from them. You could also go download that software for free and run it on your own, but you know, you're paying them rent for them operating, running, making sure it's secure, it's reliable, that it's available. That's the business model. Databricks business model is not very different from that. The slight difference is the software that we host and manage, we also develop it and we also develop the open source version of it. And these days, AWS does more of that as well. So how do you beat AWS at their own game then? Is it scalability? Is it performance, security, uptime? What's your, you know, obviously you've built a great business. And I'm curious, like, if AWS is is also able to provide something similar, how do you win? Yeah, I mean, I think we ultimately are the best in the world for operating those open source projects in a holistic, unified platform in the cloud. So if you want reliability, availability, security, you want the uh, sort of latest uh, functionality to really work out of the box, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any company that's better than offering that service in the cloud to you than us. That The software that we've developed, right? And it's the software that unifies data and AI. So taking those massive data sets and enabling you to do machine learning and data science on it, I don't think anyone else, you know, and we're de- when we're developing the software, we have our cloud SaaS version in mind. And we make sure that, you know, the SaaS version of it that we're developing internally, that's the proprietary stuff. The SaaS version works the best in the cloud. And since we have that intimate knowledge of how we built the open source version, uh, we're good at that. I think the problem a lot of other companies face is that they are developing an open source software. Mm -hmm. They are experts 
at that. They understand it really, really well, but they haven't been actually managing and offering a SaaS version of it for a very long time. And they're maybe not as good as developing that muscle as AWS, Azure, and GCP. Mm. And as a result of that, at some point they say, you know, maybe we should launch our SaaS version of our own open source software. And what happens is that the truth is, the sort of dark secret is that maybe the cloud vendors are better than them at offering their, the, you know, these vendors open source software in the cloud than they are. Just because they've been doing it for a very long time. For decades, they've been, they know how to do this stuff, the DevOps and the cloud software. Uh, so I think we had the benefit since from the beginning, we didn't have any crutch. We didn't have any on-prem revenue. So we had to get really good. It was sink it. or swim for you guys. Yeah, exactly. So we got good at it. And, you know, boy, we sucked at it the first few years. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, necessity being the mother of invention, you guys have gotten very good. And, you know, your relationship with the cloud, I, I want to, I, with the cloud vendors, I'd like to poke a little bit and and understand the relationship you've got with Microsoft. It, it, it appears to be mutually beneficial as a relationship with the Azure team and unique in many ways. The Microsoft Azure Databricks service is extremely popular. Um, curious, like how you were able to structure a deal with them and maybe you could tell us a little about it. Who sells that service? Um, is it Microsoft? And do their salespeople get compensated and get quota relief for selling it? You know, and if if so, it's it just seems like a really good deal. I'm curious how you got them into that position. Yeah, you know, I think ultimately uh, the idea was pushed pushed for by Satya Nadella and Ben Horowitz. They connected mm-hmm. over email. Of course, lots of other people were involved at Microsoft. You know, lots and lots of people took a village. But I do remember there was this one email thread between the two gentlemen that sort of really got things going. So that's how it started, and I think it makes a lot of sense. You know. We developed the software. It's our IP. We're really good at managing it. So that's what we're doing with Azure Databricks. Azure Databricks is our IP, Databricks IP, and we host and run it. But it's on Microsoft Paper, and the Microsoft sellers do get comped on selling it and full quota mm-hmm. credit. Cool. You know, we, we, of course, partner with them also in the sales process, but ultimately it's on their paper. And that way you get the sort of go-to-market momentum and reach that they have with a great product. And then both teams on the Microsoft and Databricks side spent a lot of energy integrating this and making it work really, really well. So it's been a fantastic partnership and it helped largely put Databricks maybe more on the map than it would have been without it. Uh, So we're grateful for that partnership. But then also over time with AWS, Andy Jassy, they're really also doubling down on these partnerships. And same thing with GCP, Thomas Kurian, you know, they're absolutely taking these partnerships uh, super seriously. So I think you're going to see more and more of this. Mm. And, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship with a cooperative element to it. And people, that's the thing that confuses people. Like, you know, but you guys are competing or are you partners? Are you real partners? Are you really just competing? How, How does it work? Well, it's simple. The three cloud vendors, they really need to get the data. Data has gravity, right? They need to have that data gravity and they make a lot of money on the virtual machines and on the, you know, on the storage. And Databricks is a killer app that drives a lot of storage and a lot of VMs. I can share with you, we launch close to 5 million virtual machines every day in the cloud. You know, so 5 million machines is what, you know, Databricks launches every day. That's amazing revenue for uh, the cloud vendors. You know, we bring in close to billions of dollars, you know, on each of the clouds that mm. we drive. 
So that's awesome for them, right? That's that's great. So we are great partners to them. And they are great partners to us because we're building everything on top of their platform and we're integrating with everything they have. Without them, we couldn't exist. So in some sense, it's all a channel sales play. But then on the other hand, do they also want to own some of that revenue that we're getting directly themselves by building their own services and owning that? Of course. So they're doing that as well. And that's where the competitive elements come in. A tightrope that you're walking very, very well. So in October of, of 2020, you guys announced you were at 350 million of ARR versus roughly 200 million 12 months earlier uh, with 140% net dollar retention and about 1,500 people. That is just, congratulations. That's crazy, crazy fast growth and kind of fun, must be fun for you to think about, you know, being a, taking over CEO as a, at, a, at a million dollar, even under million dollar clip and, and being where you are now. That's really, really remarkable. You know, as you think about what has helped you grow this company 350 fold um, since when you, you took over, what's the secret? What can others learn from you? Um, do you think this is about being in a great market? Was it about really sticking true to those big bets you talked about earlier? Was it Spark? You know, why do you think you've been just so incredibly successful? Yeah, and then there's some element of luck also. But I would say one more ingredient that maybe hasn't been mentioned uh, too much is that the way these research labs work, where you get to develop a lot of software and solve real problems, and you get many years to kind of incubate them, also is a way to kind of cheat, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. if, you had, if we had had to start in 2009 our startup, maybe we wouldn't have gone all the way, right? Maybe we would have run out of funding in 2011 or 12. So, you know, we were able to develop a lot of the stuff 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, and then you launched the company. Uh, so in some sense, you've had, you know, you've cheated and you've started ahead of everybody else four or five years. Um, so that's another element. So that lets you kind of iterate in a low pressure environment where there are not VCs breathing down your neck and saying, <laughs> Did you get to the million revenue or not? You know, did you get to the million dollar revenue or not? You know, do we need to fire you? So you get to iterate. And if you're not, if the project is not doing well, you can toss it aside, start a new project. So it lets you kind of take your time and get that, you know, seeds of product market fit actually earlier. Many open source projects, open source companies have that element that, you know, somewhere else before the company, actually, the core product market fit iteration happened. So that's one thing we had. The second thing I would say is then, Having product market fit in a market that's betting on a secular trend like the cloud or something that's going to happen in the future that not everybody is convinced is going to happen. And you really double down on owning that and then getting lucky that that thing actually does take off because there is some risk taking in that bet, right, in itself. Because if it was obvious, then everybody would have bet on that trend. So those things helped. The rest was just execution, I believe. Uh, so making sure that you have that vision really clear. Uh, communicating that vision over and over to the employees and making sure that you get all your employees behind that vision, uh, outlining a strategy of how you're going to get there. Mm. You know? I mean, great vision. We're going to be AI and data in the future and every company on the planet that's going to use data and AI strategically. That's great. But how are you going to do that exactly? What's the strategy this year, next year? Communicating that over and over to the company again, getting everybody aligned on that strategy and then building a stellar team, which is probably the hardest part, uh, especially if you haven't done it before. And then getting that team to execute on that strategy. If you just do, do those things right, it's, you know, it's the nuts and bolts of execution. You know, I think your chances are pretty decent. You're making it sound easy. I know it's not. One of the things you guys continue to do is continue to innovate at an incredible rate, which is, I know, not easy as you grow bigger and 
you know, you said data has gravity. I think companies have gravity too. And and it 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 gets harder to be scrappy and innovative. But I wanted to ask specifically about Delta Lake, which is an open source project, I believe. It seems to bring together in my you know, high-level understanding, it brings together the best of, of data lakes with data warehousing. So you can have all your data in one place and do batch and stream analysis of data without without having to migrate it to a warehouse. So if assuming that's right, it seems like a huge innovation and big opportunity for future growth. I'm curious, like, you know, how like use this as a use this project for us to describe how you're able to drive innovation in a company as it continues to scale and, and, and has to be more execution focused and, you know, probably doesn't feel a lot like it did back in the early days when you were still at Berkeley. So how, how do you drive innovation in a big company like this? Yeah. I mean, first of all, we're not a huge company, you know, 1700 employees, mm-hmm. so, you know, so that probably helps a little bit, but I would say there's a few things that has helped us innovate. One is that from day one, we used to, even when we're a tiny company, um, you know, I remember Jan Stoke used to say all the time, you know, cannibalize yourself before someone else does. It's a Steve mm-hmm. Jobs quote, you know, so, you know, make sure that you end up on the right side of innovators dilemma, you know, always pick the future in that dilemma instead of your current revenues. And then kudos goes to a lot of the tech leads and a lot of the folks at Databricks that they weren't sort of super attached to their darlings. Mm. You know, so kill your own darlings. Um, you know, our first SQL offering on Spark was called Shark. And the person who actually had created it, Reynolds, was in favor of killing it and adopting this other thing, uh, SQL that we built into Spark. And this has happened over and over at Databricks. So, you know, typically in a lot of companies, you end up with politics where people then will get upset and say, well, you know, this That's is my, my baby. Yeah. yeah, and this person is trying to attack it. And you, it's, you know, you get into politics, but... Databricks employees have always kind of taken that, you know, yeah, I mean, let's just cannibalize ourselves. You know, maybe we can do it better. Maybe the thing we built isn't the best thing ever. Maybe we can do even better than that. Uh, You know, Delta came a lot out of the problems we were seeing with Spark. And it was, Spark was built as something pretty complex in the sense that it was done at the university for PhDs. And we thought we put a lot of knobs in there so you can accomplish whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out those knobs, those are guns people can shoot themselves in the foot with. (laughs) So then we started realizing that a lot of enterprises are actually configuring this stuff wrong and we have to go in and do professional services to help them. What if we had to do it again and we would be much more, it's called opinionated in tech, right? In other words, build it in a way so that there aren't a lot of knobs. The knobs are already set to the default and maybe they auto adjust themselves, but you don't get any knobs. It just works out of the box. That's what Delta was. So Delta in many ways was, you know, Let's pick a much more opinionated way where you don't have that many options. So, and, and the existing teams were okay with that. They were, you know, the Spark teams and everybody said, yeah, I mean, we can even integrate these two and Spark yeah. will work even better uh, with Delta. So they integrated the two things. Um, same thing then when we pushed for MLflow, the machine learning project, the same thing there. So I think that that has helped. Part of that might be also that it's, you know, the first 20, 30 people at Databricks came from UC Berkeley and they were researchers. And as researchers, you're supposed to be truth seekers, you're supposed to search for the truth, right? And you might unearth that, hey, the world as we understood it was wrong. We have now new data. We should change our viewpoint. Uh, so I think that has also kind of a little bit continued at Databricks. And then we codified it in cultural principles. We talked about truth seeking. And one of our cultural principles always was let the data decide. So we're super data driven. And we pushed for that. 
Um, so I think these are the elements that have helped us continuing innovating to the point that actually at certain points I had to actually kind of put a break on the innovation. I had to put process in place to to stop the sort of, hey, new thing. I gotta We're going to abandon everything we did yesterday. It's like, no, 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 no. Not yet. Give it a chance. Help the customer be successful before you start a new project. I like that culture of, of truth seeking and being very data driven uh, and having those principles inculcated from from really early on. Uh, it sounds like that's been a big, big part of the reason you guys have stayed so agile and continued to innovate. Really cool. So one other element of the business I just wanted to chat briefly about is is capital. You know, you've been very successful raising money recently. I'm sure it's it's been a lot easier in your recent, you know, recent rounds than than it probably was early on for you. You've obviously achieved quite a bit of scale, uh, as we discussed, and the business is very attractive. Lots of companies, you know, in and around your field. Uh, and certainly at your scale are going public. Is that something you guys are thinking about? And, you know, wh- what does an IPO mean to Databricks? Is it an important uh, step for the company if you take it someday? Or or is it just, would you just view it as like, a, you know, another day in the life of the company and not really a, that, that big a deal? Well, more towards the latter. You know, the, the way I see it is, it also comes with negatives mm-hmm. in some sense. Uh, so for me, the most important thing has been, we're going to be around for a long time. Uh, this market is going to be gigantic. AI is just going to be an absolutely massive market. I don't think people realize how big it's going to be. But when you're inside and you get to see the use cases and you realize you're just scratching the surface and you know what it will do to these enterprises in terms of how it's going to affect their revenues, their costs, their risk taking, you realize that there's a massive opportunity. So we're playing sort of for a really long game here. So then the most important thing for me is making sure that when the IPO happens, which it will happen, uh, and we've said we're going to be IPO ready, we want it to be such that once we go public, we can continue to innovate and out-innovate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't become short-term focused, that the won't become sort of a focus on what's the stock price and how we're doing with the uh, you know, revenue for this quarter and so on and so forth. That We really focus on that big picture of the massive, massive TAM that we eventually will conquer. And hence, we should optimize for that and not anything else. And I've emphasized with the company many times, you know, IPO has an I in it, initial public offering. So it's just a event that happens and then it passes, Yeah, you know, in the company's life. So it's more towards the latter. I love that you're thinking so big about the company and uh, the use cases you shared earlier, the wide variety of things that your customers are doing with the platform is it sounds like it's a harbinger for just more good things to come. So very exciting. All right, Ali, we're at that time of the, the episode where I'm going to put you on the hot seat. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions and answer with the first thing that comes to mind. What's a book or article that you recommend for other founders? You know, what we read when we started the company was the five dysfunctions of an organization. <laughs> Is that Pat Leoncini? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. And if you read that book already, uh, because it's a fable, there's a much better version of it that he wrote called The Advantage. Where the he Advantage. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think that helped us a lot in the early days. Great. Okay. I'm going to check that can one out. Can I give Yeah. Competing Against Luck is a really great book on product management, even though it doesn't say that it's about product management. But it's really about how you really focus on the customer's problems. Uh, you know, it has this Peter Drucker quote in it that says, everybody wants to sell a one-inch drill, but nobody wants a one-inch drill. People just want a one-inch hole in the wall. 
Uh, that kind of summarizes the book. So I gave away kind of the punchline there, uh, but it's a really great book. All right. You've given me a bunch of stuff for my reading list. What advice would you give to a younger Ali today? Uh, believe in yourself and uh, the lack of experience doesn't really matter. You know, you're probably right. I, I know it might sound cliche. I would have probably been really upset if I heard that advice, but it ended up being true. And a lot of the questions that you have from first principles, they are the right questions that you should be asking. And the pros will tell you that, well, that doesn't matter or it goes this way or that way. But actually, it's an advantage that you get to have at least, uh, if you have my background, is that if you don't have a lot of experiences, that you get to view it from a new perspective and you get to question everything from first principles. These days, I find myself more opinionated and more sort of, no, it's going to be this way. Uh, earlier days, it was sort of, oh, I think this makes sense, but but people are pushing back. Maybe they're right. You know, mm-hmm. on-prem kind of, for instance, yep. uh, example, right? So there was much more self-doubt there earlier. Is that similar to advice? You're, you're still a professor at Berkeley. Um, when students come and ask you for advice, is that the kind of, uh, those are the words you dispense or anything else? Yeah, I mean, with them, I say that they can change the world, right? That's the that's my main message. Uh, you know, I just finished teaching a course at Berkeley uh, this semester. And the main thing was, you know, in, in that class that we were teaching, we told them, you know, the software that has been developed in that same class in previous years came to be adopted in the whole world. And all the students are always asking, you know, how, how can we do that? And just say, just focus on a really awesome problem and believe that you can change the world with it. And maybe you can. So think big. Think big and change the world. Well, I feel energized after this conversation, Ali. It's just been so fascinating to hear your story and the story of Databricks. Thanks for sharing it with us. I think people are going to love this episode. And um, I, and probably everybody else listening, like me, is super excited to see where you take Databricks. What an incredible story. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Glenn. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.